Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to inspire you to create your own work. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also follow and like us on Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod. Great episode today. It's with Will Miles. He's fantastic. I saw him perform here. Uh, He's been performing in New York for a while. He's been named by Brooklyn Magazine as one of the funniest 50 comics, and Comedy Central said he was one of 10 comics to watch. And it's true, he's great, he's been doing a lot of great work, and you get some tangible advice from this episode and just some fun tidbits about different things he's been working on and people he's been working with. So without further ado, here is my chat with Will Miles. The weirdest thing happened. So I met you at the pit loft at that show. Yeah. And uh, I had, I signed up for this class, this uh, the Steve Martin master class. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, just the other day, like a couple days ago after we met, I was sitting down to watch another class and you were one of the students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was wild, man. How did that uh, come about? Uh, a friend of mine that I did a commercial with was like, Hey, uh, are you free? Like next Wednesday, do you want to do this thing? My friend is doing. And so I just, I said, yeah, sure. No problem. And then, uh, so their, her friend hit me up and was like, Hey, all we need from you is like, just like send a 10 minute clip of your standup. And, uh, and then, yeah, we'll probably have you come do this thing next Wednesday. And it was just this thing. That's all they were calling just this thing. Yeah. And then I, they're like, all right, come in for dress rehearsal on like Tuesday. So I went into that, like, we just need to get your outfit together because it's going to be filmed. It's this thing called Masterclass. I was like, oh, cool. I've heard of Masterclass because of Shonda Rhimes and stuff like that. Right. And I, I had just seen the ads. And then they they were like, cool. So uh, you'll come in at, like, I don't know, 8 a.m. And then Steve Martin will come in. And then he'll uh, start, like, dissecting your jokes and talking to you about comedy. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I was like, did, it, did you lose your mind? <laughs> I was I was out of it for sure. I was like, wait, what? Uh, all right, cool. This is just this was just a fun thing I was doing because my friend was like, hey, you're free next Wednesday. You want to make right. a little bit of money? I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> like, wow. So how now was the partner is also here. Great. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. So how was that experience for you? I haven't uh, finished it, so no spoilers. But yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> it was fun though. It was uh, it was. I mean, it's awesome to be able to talk to a legend and then. Yeah. I, I mean, in my head, I I don't have them, like, uh, copied down manually, but in my head, I have copied down all the times so he told me I was funny, or, like, a joke <laughs> works, or uh, or things like that, or, like, t- calling me a headliner, saying I gotta, pretty much gotta keep headlining everywhere, and mm-hmm. even if 50 people just headline, stuff like that. It was all, it was great to hear Steve Martin tell you these things. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you were such a gentleman, too, because when he walked in the room and uh, greeted everyone, you stood up to shake his hand. Yeah. Uh, which, I don't I'm know if... You raised me right, man. <laughs> right, I know, right. Where are you from? Are you from the South? Or... 
<laughs> no, right? Yeah. I mean, Chicago, so everyone there is from the yeah, South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. I got family there, too. So it's just like a bunch of polite people who raised you right, as you said. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And that was a good group that you had. You even had one of the co-creators of Reductress in that class, yeah, right? That's very cool, yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I had never met her. I know a lot of her friends. I knew Anna Dresden before that, but I, I never met Beth. And so it was cool to meet her, and she was awesome, of course. And then yeah, they doing great work over there. Yeah, they're all cool people. It was a group, great group of four. Yeah, it's it's yeah. so that was really awesome. Um, from your experience there, I imagine you learned a ton. How much? How long ago was that, by the way? That was in December when we shot it. Okay, so you've had a good bit of time to kind of utilize any tips he gave you. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Basically, just the whole, the main thing I got from it is the, the, like more, a more, a better sense of like believing in yourself as far as where your career can go. Because mm-hmm. even just hearing him talk about, I read a lot of Born Standing Up, his book, and so yeah. even reading all that, you're like, oh, okay, like I kind of get how his career went, but then you never really look at how to relate it to yourself. But talking to him, I was able to figure out how more I could related to myself especially at this point in my career where i'm approaching 10 years in so it's like all right even if because a lot of people are like but you're like already headlining clubs you're a professional already why'd you take a class i'm like first of all you can never not learn something in life yeah and also i'm at the sort of the point in the career where i've gotten some bit parts already and i've Mm -hmm. had writing jobs now but like there's a step there's all there's all sorts of steps with every and it's like sure I've been doing stand-up for that long and I really love stand-up I'm I'm, I'm where I want to be as far as stand-up uh, at the current moment there's always places to grow in it but I I like where I'm at is where I should say I'm not where I want to be but I, I like where I'm at right now yeah it sounds like you're in a good place it's fun it's great and it's always been about the fun and about my own personal growth as opposed to the checkpoints that everyone always says you should have these checkpoints mean this these check it's like no nah, I'll get the checkpoints whenever they come if, if right. I do get them, but the main thing I want is my hour-long sets to be out there mm-hmm. for people to, to hear. Especially for me, it's important that black youth hear a voice like mine and and hear a different a different tone than what they expect, and they're able to relate to it in some way. If one person relates to my act, I'm happy. And so that's, that's why awesome, yeah. But it was nice to hear him say things, and because how do you get to acting? He this dude sold out Madison Square and then kind of just stopped and then started. <laughs> being in movies and then he stopped being in movies well he kept being in movies but then he was writing and directing movies and right. then he's, doing I don't know, art and all this playing all the banjo yeah right <laughs> and the thing through the head that was right he did that in madison square in a kill that's amazing yeah. yeah i mean it's so wild i mean i think if you showed anyone who knew him in the 70s knew of his act in the yeah. 70s just knew the arrow through the head guy if you said that guy's a legitimate renaissance man right yeah then they would go what are you talking about <laughs> wild and crazy guy right yeah that yeah, he's guy. funny he's great but what <laughs> a poet a yeah. playwright yep yeah, but he's name. legit yeah. i think i think that speaks to and i and it's great to hear you say like you can never not learn something because you do have to keep learning you always have to sort of grow that's i feel like it's very easy for comedians and actors to feel like, oh, why would I take a class or why would I do this thing that's going to help me grow and learn? You, you always have to learn. You at least have to have that attitude. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, there's maybe, always things you can take in. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you're Chris Pratt, you don't need to go to Stella Adler. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, there's some way he can learn. And, and if you're in the position like his or anyone's position, you should always be trying to learn and grow. Yeah. That's the artists do. And, and I, that included in that, which people a lot of times I've received criticism from it, but Matthew McConaughey is someone who did that because he had he had a career before he was good at acting where he mm-hmm. was like complacent. He was in the star of every romantic comedy and he yeah. was a multimillionaire. He was fine. There's no reason to grow. But he still was like, no, I got to get I got to do this Lincoln lawyer shit. I'm gonna <laughs> just do commercials and then get really good at acting and then really focus on on my craft and i didn't see it coming that's a really great example because he is somebody who his first movie wasn't like you know something amazing per se it was you know it was uh a time to kill it was just kind of a a a popcorny kind of movie yeah it was dates and confused technically which is a a legit movie but i mean with with him leading the movie it was a time to kill which is kind of a popcorn movie uh, but he still was able to like take it serious enough, and then he did a Spielberg movie that didn't do well. But then he did a bunch of just garbage. Yep, <laughs> you know, failure to launch, and yep. you know, I'm not saying those movies don't have their place and can't be oh, enjoyable yeah. to watch to a certain degree. But you're right; he could have just kept taking in multi-million dollar checks and done the easy thing in movies that are forgettable that don't push him as an artist. Yep, yep. and then it was like. Lincoln Lawyer and True Detective, and yeah, he, yeah. he wrote like a forty-page uh, dissertation about that character before they started filming. True yeah, for True Detective. That's awesome. Yeah, hell yeah. Right, like he just so deeply got invested in who is this character, what are his religious beliefs, what does he specifically yep. think? Like he processed out so much stuff, and that's awesome. That's yeah. someone who is willing to grow. And uh, I think for me, myself, like I always want to continue to grow. And it takes knowing that you have to push yourself and learn new stuff. Yeah, I feel like I learn something new every day. And it's always you, you should keep people around you who, who encourage that as well. And I, I try to always do that where people, yeah. you know, I'm around people who are top of the field, but always still growing. And they're yeah. always, well, there's some places I need to still study. And I'm watching that and being like, all right, cool. You kind of never stop learning the craft. Yeah. Especially with stand-up. There's, all, there's a new way to tell a story every day. Yeah. And if you can find it, Aziz Ansari's Master of None season two. I mean, that storytelling on there this, this last season was incredible. And it's like, yeah. he was already killing it with season one. But season two, it's like, damn. All right. Yeah. He, he You've got to up your game. Yeah. Yeah, and the only way to up your game is to continue to push and grow yourself and, and just never stop. Yeah, uh, yeah. Never stop learning. I mean, like that's what the grind really is. Uh, it's not just a matter of like uh, getting the right gigs or something like that. It's being able to do the gigs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you can uh, tour as a midler and you want to do an, an hour, you've got to be able to do an hour so it's not yep. just like talking to the right people and getting someone to give you an opportunity you have to deliver once you <laughs> once you, you have that hour to step away from middling which is what uh i've been told by a couple people but yeah it's like you got to be able to to walk away from that easy 25 minutes check on the yeah. road and be like well shit i might lose some money but at least i did 
an hour, 45 to an hour on the road. And mm-hmm. the people will leave there being like, that dude is who I came to see. And he was funny. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to stepping away from middling, uh, is, is the process sort of like, okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to do that in X amount of time because I'll be able to make X amount of money. And, and then I'll, uh, also, uh, put some benchmarks to say where I need to be as a, as a, my own, uh, performer uh like what is the process in stepping away? i don't know for me it was just uh you know i was honestly still open to middling mm-hmm. when i moved here but i was told by a person i was opening for that i should just try to do do things myself and i was like yeah that's a not in so many words even it was just more of like a kind of subtly said and like sort of hinted at and i was like i respect that and i do need to do my own thing more where i where i I can build a career myself and it's time to build it myself because when you're middling you're just kind of somebody else's career Mm -hmm. you're 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 sort of leaning on that a little bit the more they get missed the more you get on the road the more you get money the more you get known but it's like if you can do it yourself do that and then Mm -hmm. people bring on the road and it's less of a them helping you out and more of a like them introducing the world to you as opposed to them helping you out. Right. Which is right. what you want. And the New York, moving to New York helped me a lot with that because in Chicago, I was middling for everybody. It was just what you do. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be known as a headliner when you're just living in Chicago. It was back then at least. Now I think it's easier because there's actually like industry there now. But back then, it was like, hey, you can only middle for people and then you got to move to L.A. or New York. Unless you can do it. And people have done it from there. I don't want to discount that. But right. for me, I needed to move. And so when I moved, it was like, all right, well, now I can potentially see my path a little bit easier now that I've left the, the places where I'm definitely going to be able to make money middling year round. Mm-hmm. I'm in New York where I'm, you know, when you first move here, you got to get well known first. So you got to right. go out and meet people. And for me, my, my route was I knew... I had been visiting New York a long time, so I knew everybody working. I knew a lot of people working. Mm-hmm. And I was always doing – I've always been able to do Hamble versus Knitting Factory show. So mm-hmm. I was like, living here knowing I – he already has kept me in mind for that show. So I know I've done that show many times before. I could probably do it when I move here. I'll keep that in mind. But I was also like, let me go the open mic route though because mm-hmm. – I'm still new here, even though I've been doing it for so many years. I'm new in right. New York. How so long I, have you been in New York? For almost four years now. Okay. Yeah. So you're hitting up open mics. Uh, yeah, just I was hitting up open mics and meeting new people. Yep. Started an open mic with my friend Maria Heinig. Is that the one at the Knitting Factory? No, no, that's. Oh, that's a show show. That's, that's not a show, show. Yeah, but me and my friend Maria Heinig, when I moved here, she was one of the first people I met, and we started an open mic at Legion. And that was another way to meet people. Mm-hmm. Where, all right, well, here we host this. this is a, we'll make it a fun open mic. We'll go to Christian Polanco's open mic on Monday. It's like, yeah, we'll do all these things where you just you meet more people and more people. Eventually, everybody knows you're funny. Right. And then on top of that, you're doing the shows. Because then I, I knew people, so I was able to get on other shows mm-hmm. that some of the open micers maybe didn't feel like they were ready for. But it was like, damn, he's doing that show and he's still doing open. I don't know if they thought that, but I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's probably protecting. But <laughs> for me, I was like, all right, cool. I don't, I almost don't want them to know that I'm doing these shows, right? Because I get booked on some of their shows too. 
And I feel like sometimes they're at least, I mean, I'm from Chicago, it's the city of haters, so I can't help but think that people <laughs> don't want to see you win a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How's that experience been different here? Do you feel that people, this is a city of haters too? No, not really. I mean, you're going to have, comedy is a, is a sport where people are going to be bitter no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a natural thing as far as social media, especially where you can see what people are doing and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I should be doing that. And you can't help but think that, I guess, in comedy. Right. You can. Well, but it, yeah. And it happens even in music or whatever. Yeah. Like people, anyone where you can see the success of someone else is having or the progress they're having, you're going to go, yeah. oh, like I've heard so many stories of some musician hearing or some singer, songwriter, somebody in entertainment hearing someone else like John Lennon hearing a Paul McCartney song when they were both solo and being like, ah, I better get back in the studio. Like that, yep. that's sort of like healthy competition. That's healthy. But then when you're like <laughs> a comic, I got that, I should get that. Even right. Go any of those routes to get that. For whatever I, reason, stand ups, we just have that sort of that bitter. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Where <laughs> What's it happening like, to them? You could have a totally different lane. Like somebody got booked on a on a children's show and stand ups will still be mad that dude got a children's show when it's like, but your whole act is about sex and you want to do why are you mad this person got a children's show? You shouldn't you have your own lane. Everybody has their own lane. <laughs> right. But it's a thing with stand ups. Yeah, so I didn't want to knowing that journey. I didn't want to like feed into it or, or piss anyone off when I first moved here. Uh, I see. Not that I I I it's been hard to care I, it's hard for me to like really care what people think so, <laughs> so i always had that too but i was like why ruffle feathers if i don't have to so let me just do the open mics like you're supposed to and then do things yeah i see yeah 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 respectability yeah, too i mean you, you gotta be right. respect people who've been here in new york longer than you anyway so that's that was, for sure yeah <laughs> you want to come in and then get something and they'll yeah they'll automatically it'll be like uh those reality shows where someone gets a, a TV gig and there's someone yeah. who's been working the circuit, the TV industry for a while. Like I should have gotten that hosting. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's the same as gentrification. I feel like, where it's mm-hmm. like, you can't, you can't move into a new neighborhood and just totally ignore the people who've been a part of that landscape for the last 50 years, which mm-hmm. is a lot of gentrification. It's like, Hey, you move in, you ingratiate yourself with the old community bring up ideas for a new community and that's how gentrification can work but it's right you can't move in and be like i got this shit I, i've been doing it this long and then move all them out yeah right and that's <laughs> what a lot of yeah that's every field where you can't just come in like that thinking you're hot shit right <laughs> you got all the right ideas <laughs> i'm here now let me be the vice president of sales <laughs> yeah right yeah you've never worked in this I'm, this town I'm a new mayor. right yeah <laughs> <laughs> right that makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how it's important for you, for young black youth, to hear a voice like yours. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so I am from Chicago, which, right. as far as the news will tell you, it's a dangerous place. But And that's just one part of... It is. It's just... well, it's like it's all of Chicago. Right. Which is sad, because Chicago is very segregated. And so they, the way the system is set up in Chicago, they have it so that everybody is in their own communities. Black people are over on the south and west sides, and theoretically, 
only white people are on the north side, but I am from the north side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, where all the movies are from, all those uh, romantic comedies in the 90s that took place in Chicago, they were in like my neighborhood. Okay. So, so I am from there, but I went to a school, a magnet school, Whitney Young, that pulled from all over the city. And I've just always been the type of dude to just meet everybody, regardless. Right. I think it's all human. Right. And so if I'm hanging out, I hung out at a bar mitzvah, and then the, a week later I might be hanging out at on the south side and like hanging out on the block with somebody. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm tough and not because I'm Jewish, because <laughs> we're all human, and I, I'm able to relate to each one of those people in in a different way. And you know, mm-hmm. has that now? And this is uh, coming from my personal experience because I'm very similar. Where I'm like, I don't have anything against anybody. We're all human. They're, I'm definitely black. I definitely am black and proud. I also just re- just talk to everybody. And, yeah. and the people that I kind of roll with are the people who don't have a problem. They're similar to me. They don't have a problem with any race. Yeah. And so it yeah. ends up being a, a multi-ethnic group that I will <laughs> want to surround myself with. Naturally. Right. And right. I think a lot, of it, a lot of what separates some people is fear. So you have a fear of uh, of people, even in people in a gang, there's a fear of that that I think shouldn't be there. It's like just because they're in a gang, they're in a community group, basically. That They're reaching out for something. That's why they're yeah. in that group. Yeah, exactly. The same way you might have had a coach, a bas- uh, like a coach or like a teacher that you really liked, their older person in their life might have been in a gang. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they're any different from you. Mm-hmm. It just means that's the that's how they grew up. And that. so like. The things I write and everything I write, everything I work on is an attempt to make sure that we understand that everybody's the same. And here's why, sort of sort of like a like there's no there's no need to fear this the culture shock of going to the north side of Chicago if you're black or Latino, just as there's no way no reason to fear the culture shock of going to the south side if you're white or right. anything else. Yeah. I um, am very new to New York, been here three months, and uh, I have family in Chicago I've visited, yeah. but um, I don't know enough about what, uh, you know, what, what the community is like or the, the sort of culture is like um, in either place for black folks. Uh, I know where I grew up, I, I think there is some sort of criticism of me wanting to just hang out with anybody i'm in junior yeah. high and i'm hanging out with the kids from, or laos you know like i'm hanging out with anybody and there are some black kids who didn't like that about me uh, yeah have you run into any issues like that and if so how did you handle it yeah i mean my a lot of my childhood was uh i was immediately separated and i think it's because i had more access to resources so i was able to pass certain tests Mm-hmm. So like in the gifted program, there was a program below that, that the class was majority black and there was a program above it that honestly, the class was majority Asian, mm-hmm. but not, and, and partially white. And, uh, and I think it's all the focus of your home, the, the, the ex, the access to certain things you have. Like if you have a right. question test about a hot tub, how the hell is a kid who's never seen a hot tub supposed to know the answer to that question? <laughs> right. How are they going to be able to relate to the question? Like, yeah, exactly. So it's all bullshit as far as the way the school system was set up in the first place. Mm-hmm. I just happen to have access to certain things that put me in a, in the gifted program. Mm-hmm. And in the gifted program as a kid, you're you're able to have the confidence to make sure you're in that your whole life. So I was on put on the right track 
right. just because my family had a little bit extra money from the jump. Right. So knowing same, that, same for I me. That whole life anyway, so it put me in a position where I was a little bit like I don't want to say I was resentful of my life, but I was aware of my life. I was aware I was the only reason that I felt different was because the world put me in a position where I should feel different. Right. Even though I felt connected to those kids in each, each class, mm-hmm. but I was literally separated from them. So because of that, you're going to naturally have some people mad at you in each class where it's like, Oh, you're right. that Earl sweatshirt line. I love. And that one song where he says too white for the black kids, too black for the white. I felt like that a little bit in grammar school. Mm, me too. Yeah. Whereas like, because, and it's to me, it's all based on a lot of bullshit. Yeah. Cause I'm I'm I I'm not sure how old you are. I might be a little older than you. Um, when in the early '90s, yeah. Uh, what was popular that came out grunge music, which I wasn't into because I just yeah, wasn't yeah. into it at the time. It's like <laughs> as an adult, I grew to appreciate it. Um, but you know, gangster rap got huge, yeah. and that became the image. And then at some point in the '90s, Ebonics wasn't just people from a certain socioeconomic yes. situation that they were put in because of the system. Uh, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't the way that particular group speaks, which is also just like insulting in a whole other <laughs> way that people didn't realize it was the way it ended up being insulting was, uh, that's how black people speak. Right. Which is not how I speak. Right. Also not how most black people speak. Exactly. But that became the image or the identity attached with black people. Since I didn't represent it, there were white people and black people who would act like I'm not black. Yeah, same here. Yeah. So you're, you're not really black. I'd hear that so much growing up where it's uh, like. I have a joke where oh, I say man. someone said I'm pretend black. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's in my set. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because somebody actually said that nonsense to me. <laughs> And it's, I think the frustrating thing for me, and it's good to like talk to someone else who has the same sort of experience. Um, it's frustrating to me because it's, you know, people also say, oh, like I actually saw someone on Twitter say, uh, light skinned black people aren't persecuted. Well, that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like if you just look at one of the things they used to point this out was that light skinned black people will get more money than uh, in, a, in a work environment than black than darker black people. I mean, right. And that's I, true. So, and that's messed up. But it's not like yeah. the light skinned black people are the ones who are determining. Yeah. What, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's somebody else yeah. who is determining that. And we both are making less than white people. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at those stats, so and what if you're a light skinned black woman or dark skinned black woman, you're definitely making less than both anyone. You're making black <laughs> women, make women <laughs> white women included. You know, like black uh, oh, yeah. black men make less than white women according to yeah. the stats that I've seen. Yeah, and same. so um, this notion that light skinned blacks aren't persecuted is false and then to say they also said uh, getting made fun of for your skin color is not persecution and that gets into the dark skin versus light skin this is some deep stuff that the average person listening to this probably doesn't know happens within the black community but there is that sort of like that movie school days right yeah i went to that school <laughs> right 
right test, yeah and i, I like more. yeah exactly so yeah. it's kind of like okay um the thing about saying that is saying that because dark skin people are making fun of your having lighter skin uh that's not persecution but when you're not accepted by the one group that you feel you identify with because it's who you are that is a form of persecution that is something bad even if it's not technically persecution and i think for me especially being here in new york and identifying as black but there are people here who think i'm uh middle eastern or persian or or hispanic or something or Dominican, yeah. I always get Dominican. Dominican. Like, <laughs> yeah. Someone said Colombian about me the other recently. I was like, oh, you look like you'd be Colombian. Like, yeah, I do. Uh, I could go up to Washington Heights and just be fine. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, my thing is, you know, I, when it comes to voice and having a voice for young black youth, have you run into any issues? So this is why I brought all this up. If you, uh, when it comes to having a voice, you could still, of course, have the opinions that you have. That's not going to change. But does do you think there's a different impact because of that experience that we've been talking about? The sort of experiences that we're talking about, like, does that change the way the young black youth might receive your voice? I always, you know, that that's come up as a, a thing that's crossed my mind. But I feel like. And this comes from having been a teacher also in Chicago mm-hmm. and have, I've had students from uh, low income housing and stuff like that who and uh, you, you, you just relate to them just from personal experience. Like they don't need to know everything about my life, but the more I get specific about it, the more there's something they can relate to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I maybe I haven't had all the experiences that they've had, but I've had experiences of my own that they can identify with. Mm-hmm. So. My whole life I've lived by the quote I learned in college from Lorraine Hansberry where she said the specific is the key to the universal. And so or Raising the Sun, she just got specific as hell about everything she was writing. So no matter what, even if you're middle class, upper class, low, low income, you're going to relate to Raising the Sun in some way because that this, as specific as she got, there's, there's more in that that you can pull from. So mm. my acts, I get as specific as I can about my own life. And the more specific I get, the more there's different things that I feel like black youth can pull from mm-hmm. anyone from honestly. But because that's my target demo is to, you know, reach, reach, reach the black youth, especially specifically of Chicago. But I, you know, that's just my target demo. But it, I want to reach everybody. Obviously, mm-hmm. the people I care about the most are the people who I, I was once a part of. So the young black youth in Chicago. So that's. That's who I try to reach. And the more specific I get about my experiences as a black kid in Chicago, the more people I hope it reaches. And so if, even if it only reaches like five people who identify with things that I'm saying, that's good for me. you know. And those mm. five will tell five people and then they'll tell ten and then that will reach more and more. And my voice will get out there more. But I mean, another way to try – I'm writing a pilot about it too. So it's all related. Book about it too. It's mm-hmm. all related to – the voice I'm trying to cultivate that is just really just my voice. That's all brilliant. I love that quote too. And I think it, you know, that being specific, that really is the key to helping anyone who is trying to write the most raw material 
Yeah. Like, we'll get more specific. Dig, yeah. dig deeper and get more dig specific. What really happened to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it also brings it all around to we're all people, we're all humans, so we are actually going to relate more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I did a thing uh, for my speech class in high school. Uh, we were supposed to take a song and talk about it and what it means to us. And I took Englishman in New York by Sting. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, here we are surrounded by uh, rap who was exploding at yeah. that time, uh, and it, the obvious thing probably would have been to pick a rap song. But not only am I picking a Sting song, <laughs> but it's one called "Englishman in New York," and it's be- it's because of the line "Be yourself, no matter what they say." Yep, and that res- that anybody can relate to that line. Exactly. Be you. Don't any. There's a lot of people trying to be other people. You know, there's a, in comedy. It's like uh, there's a lot of people trying to be all the famous comics. Right. But who are you? And why? Why are you separate from anyone else? So be be the most yourself, and that's how you excel. Right. And that's really all the people that you admire in comedy are just being yeah. themselves as well. I mean, yeah. That, and sometimes I could see like Seth Meyers and Neil Brennan because they're really good friends. You can see yeah. some similar mannerisms, but their voice as comics completely different, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, Six. you know, it's that voice that I like. Yep. <laughs> voices. Yeah. So don't don't worry about like copying mannerisms, which is what people do. Like there is a time where everyone was just trying to be Hannibal Burris. And then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a lot of people were copying Kyle Kinane at one point. Like there's a lot yeah. of. Yeah, a lot of that copying going on. Which um, is maybe in your first year because you got to have your archetype of of people. Mm-hmm. So the frame of reference of yeah. going on stage is all the stuff you've seen. My first year I was probably copying Dave Chappelle. Oh gosh, for me. because I was like, well, that's not actually me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a lot of similar shit about growing up, but it's not me. Yeah, right. I was a and someone pointed pinpointed this in my first year in comedy. I was like a cross between Seinfeld and Chappelle, and I was like, "Don't tell anyone." <laughs> you know, it was like, you're the only person that has nailed it. Everyone right. else just says Seinfeld, but it right. is definitely Seinfeld mixed with Chappelle. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you got to emulate people, but then yeah, you got to make it your own. Right, exactly. I had mentors for that too. Everybody who uh, who sort of gave me an opportunity from an early early point, they're like it's Hannibal Buress. Eric Andre, Chris Gethard, those mm-hmm. are people, Baron Vaughn, those are all people who like have really given me opportunities when I needed them and then mm-hmm. helped me like talk to me about comedy when I needed it. And like I consider them all good friends. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're all those, they have their own, every one of those people has a show that they created on their own. Right. So, yeah. Or like some, some aspect of their life, it's all self made. They, they mm-hmm. all, created their own experience so you can't they have undeniable voices oh gosh yeah yeah Yeah. it's like when you have to open for baron once and um i've heard good things about all those guys but baron's the only one i met and i i saw baron on some stand-up like sets on conan or whatever and thought he was great and liked him but i was that does not prepare you for just the amazingness that is a one-hour baron von show Yep, exactly. And he was not only just incredible on stage, but off stage, he seemed like, like I'm not at all surprised to hear that he mentored you because he just seems like 
just experiencing him, he was just an incredible dude. Yeah, yeah. Just super nice. And All those they're the nicest, most like very talented, gifted people who really respect what they do and they hope but they also are like super in charge of their path. Which yeah. is gosh, yeah. And I I mean, um Chris Gethart's really just always swinging for the fences. Yeah. Uh, all of those guys are. Um, yeah. I think there's a really almost scary way that Chris Gethart goes for it because he is so outside of the mainstream, but yet he's getting in the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that can maybe even be scarier, but I don't know. Um, we'll but see. <laughs> yeah. um, either way, it's super inspiring. Uh, you've been able to work with those guys. You've even written on Chris Gethart's show, right? Yeah, and still do. Yeah, we come back in uh, August, August 2nd. Awesome. And yeah. uh, how did you, when did that stuff start becoming a part of your career where you're getting these great writing gigs? Uh, with Chris, actually. So I was, uh, I had just been opening for people for a while, mainly Hannibal, and then, you know, just. I'd be around Eric a lot and occasionally open for him too. And then I moved to New York and then I was, uh, I was doing a show. I was doing a check spot at stand up New York. Mm-hmm. I did, I did well, you know, I've been doing it for a while at that point. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I didn't do well, but I, I did do well. And then I hung out with Chris cause he was, he was on that show too. I can't remember if he was headlining or just going up right before, uh, the check spot, but he, he, uh, you know, he obviously killed too. And then we were hanging out talking for a while and we just related on a lot of different things. And so then that was a way we, we both took a liking to each other. Cause we were like, Oh shit, we have similar experiences. You know, we were both like, we both looked about 12 until we were in college. Both <laughs> <laughs> really short up until like a certain year of high school. It's like certain things that really articulate your, your youth experience. We had a lot of those in common. And while most of my shit, I'm not outright, I didn't have a lot of outright depression stuff like he did, but I, mm-hmm. I understood where he was coming from with his, the things he was talking about. And I, I like the idea of always helping people, which he also has, which is like, mm-hmm. why do anything unless if you can't help somebody? And so we, we mm-hmm. had a lot of common ground there and then we would see each other around. Then he had some shows where he would go to people's houses and he took me along on a few of those where I, I went to different people's houses across the country and we did stand up there and then uh, still just always talking, always checking in on each other. And then he had a somebody who was going on tour who wrote on his show in season one when he was on Fusion. And then he had an opening. So he called me and he was like, can you do this? But I was already on the road. So it didn't end up working out. I I'd already had some gigs lined up. And so then when season two got picked up, I, he reached out right away and then I that's wrote cool. some stuff for it, wrote some samples, and then they all liked it, and then they hired me, and that was kind of the first. Now I've had like five writing jobs, but all because of that one. Yeah. When Chris first found me, and then was like, "This dude's a good. I think he'd be good." Mm-hmm. And then I wrote the samples, and they liked it, and then I got hired, and since then it's just been like steady, steady work. Does it help to not only like people say like it helps to know these people, but to know them in the sense I think that means know them in the sense that you know how to write for them like you knew them well enough to know their voice well enough you got to know their voice and you got to know your you also have to know your own voice so that you can if you the more you know your own voice the more you're able to write for someone else i feel like Mm -hmm. because if you're just sitting and writing it could be material you could be using for yourself that you're giving somebody else 
Yep. Right. Well, that, and you're, you're like, all right, this. Sometimes you write shit and you're like, this is a great joke that I could never tell because <laughs> it does not match my voice. So it's right. like, I like the joke I just wrote, but it would sound so weird coming from me. So you write it. Mm. Like, I don't know, you, you never want to write for somebody else in stand-up, but you're like, this is a better joke for you. If Here's a concept that maybe you might want to fuck with. Here, go for that. Like, I'm on shows a lot with my buddy, Drew Michael, mm-hmm. and we've never, we've never written for each other, but we both understand, like, we have completely different styles. He's one of the funniest comedians in the country, by the way. He's awesome. great, Drew Michael. And he, uh, but it's just like, it's just that. It's like, sometimes I'll have a thing where I'm like, this would be good for, if Drew said it, and I love watching Drew do things so like you know what i'm not gonna even i'm not even gonna try (laughs) why why would i do this on stage when i can see and then i won't even have to tell him but i feel like he'll maybe because we watch some of the same shit or some i don't know what we do Mm -hmm. but like he he ends up having a good joke automatically about that and i don't know that's awesome yeah I've never even like consulted with him and been like, I thought of this thing. It's <laughs> so good in his voice. Yeah. It's just so in his voice already that he knows where what to take it. Yeah. In pop culture, he can pull from where I don't even tell him like, this is funny. So about writing for other people. Um, I think from certain fans might think like, Oh, so-and-so wrote that material. But in all honesty, they could, you know, the, the, anything that Louis C.K. wrote for Chris Rock is better for Chris Rock to do. Yeah. And it's written in, it's like people, it's like it takes away for some people that, uh, you know, they're, you know, the way they look at Chris Rock is, uh, is uh, taken down a notch or two for some reason when they hear that Louis C.K. wrote for him. But it's still actually to the testament of Chris Rock's voice that yeah. someone else could say, Oh, this is the type of thing you could talk about. Yeah, and that was all for TV. That's why I love stand up so much too, because you know nobody's written anyone else's stand up. Even like <laughs> me saying that about Drew, I, that means I could write. If Drew got a TV show, I feel like I could write for his TV show. But I've never like we've never talked about stand up outright mm-hmm. like that. And the same with Chris uh, Gethard and me. Same with uh, Rock and Louie. It's like yeah, when people have TV shows, it's good to know their voice because then you can be like, all right. I know I can write for your voice. So Louie writing for Chris's voice just means Chris was that good at stand-up. Right. That's all it is. It's like, yeah, he was that good at stand-up that the minute he got a TV show, Louie was like, <laughs> I got you, dog. I know exactly the type yeah. of shit that would be on your TV show. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, another aspect of this from a, from a stand-up point of view, it's just really fun when I've given somebody a note about a joke it's like oh why don't you try this line oh, and then yeah. you go oh that totally fixes the joke and then they go do it and you see it kill that's yeah. like a good feeling of like yeah, yeah like, i helped yeah hell yeah <laughs> those are like tags and shit. i love mike kaplan is so good at giving you tags for jokes yeah, yeah he's good it's like oh man what if you are like even i mean not to name drop but i was with, around berbigla the other day and he gave me a couple uh tags for a joke where i was like oh shit that's i never have thought that before yeah try that out this week a lot and then it works so yeah when, sometimes you get a good tag yeah did you ever have an issue like sometimes someone else gives you a premise or you know maybe even uh a, a more form joke and when you told it it was like it totally did well and you liked the joke but did it ever bug you that you didn't come up with it yeah oh, <laughs> well when i was starting out so i, I host knitting factory with clark jones kenny DeForest. 
Mm-hmm. And I've Clark since I was like 15. So when I was starting out in comedy in Chicago, he he didn't really he had no plans to be a, a stand up comic. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Yo, I'll just write for you. We'll do some Paul Mooney, Richard Pryor shit." Uh-huh. Right. I got these concepts, and so I tried his jokes on stage that he had written when I was starting out, and they were not my voice at all. Mm-hmm. So like it was it was one of those things where even if I did, if even if I did get laughs on stage, I think I feel like the audience just knows when it's not your voice, right? And so then it was like, obviously, these are your jokes, <laughs> aren't you? He was like, yeah, I'm just gonna do them, and I was like, yeah, that, you know, that makes total sense. <laughs> This whole writing each other's thing is like, yeah, it doesn't work. So whenever yeah. the whole giving somebody jokes thing, maybe that worked in like the 70s and 80s, but it does not work right now because <laughs> everyone's too individualistic to mm-hmm. have write their own. It really has to be like about who that person is, and that's just yeah. going to come from their mind. Yep. Same way with rap lyrics, all that ghostwriting shit mm-hmm. in rap. It's like, yeah, but you can tell – you can tell a lot of what Drake says is his own because those are personal experiences mm-hmm. that a Jewish kid <laughs> from Canada Canada had. <laughs> like, right. He's not having someone write some of that shit. That's <laughs> that's his own experiences. Right. Right. <laughs> Trips to Memphis from Canada. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Who has those experiences from going from Canada to Memphis randomly? Like what? No. I could just write, just hear a beat and be like, I'm going to write that for you now. You know, like they're not going to come up with that after off of a beat. Right. (laughs) If Rick had a TV show, I could write some sketches for him. Right. (laughs) You know, I I feel like I can understand some of his his shit in his life because I could, yeah. A lot of the just like talk about ghostwriting and stealing jokes is um, just, it's like, it seems like it's, mostly done among people who don't understand parallel thought yeah yeah, or yeah. anything about creating yeah they just hear something that's similar and they go they stole yeah and, and it's, it's like maybe they had a because uh, i have a joke about uh deaf people because i did i literally did a show for deaf people and i actually wanted to see what the n-word was in sign language <laughs> oh <laughs> interesting about that and so then oh, somebody yeah, heard that dude it was on Comedy Central, and so I got a tweet one day like, you stole that joke from Donald Glover. And so I looked at Donald Glover's thing. I was like, I replied immediately. I was like, first of all, love Donald Glover. Yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, <laughs> I honestly, I was like, at that point, I honestly was like, I don't think I've ever seen a full set from Donald Glover, so I don't even know how I could even steal from Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. And so I watched it, and I was like, oh, he did – it's not even close to the same joke, but I was like, he just did a show for deaf people too, and so you're you're saying we have a similar thought because we both did shows for a deaf similar experience. Yeah, we had a similar experience where we both did shows for deaf people. He took the joke this way, I took the joke this way. They're completely different, but because they both start from, I did a show for deaf people. Mm-hmm. Oh, you stole that! You stole the idea of doing shows for deaf people. It's like, no, I what? <laughs> He's, there's only one person who can do just shows for deaf people. <laughs> Like, and it's not a People go to comedy shows tons. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a very pedestrian discussion and argument. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, I had the I had Adam Frucci from Split Sider on saying, yeah, that's why we don't talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. one thing we won't talk about on Split our Sider? website. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. They won't like, have that discussion because it's absurd. It is absurd. 
unless it's like outright right full you jokes know, yeah the mencia stuff outright, yeah, full, outright jokes, full jokes telling people to their face he's gonna do it i mean that's <laughs> a different situation bragging um, about, like that's that's way different yeah. and be doing it that's different than like what they're trying to do with certain comedians right now who are famous yeah, they're just attacking someone who's famous. Yeah. They don't like their material. Yep, yep. They don't like that person's thing. And it's like, just watch somebody else. There are plenty of other people <laughs> there. Just watch somebody else. They're not stealing from seven people to do a stand-up show. They've <laughs> been doing it for years. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I'm wanting to get stronger at comedy here. Um, haven't I've mostly been focusing on improv since I've gotten here. I want to do more stand-up Uh writing better material making my jokes that i have bulletproof um is there that that growth for you is there a a process you went through i mean a lot of people say uh you know you just got to get on stage but if you get on stage and you don't have good taste for what is working or a good bead on on that joke did well then you're not really going to grow, or at least you're going to grow at a very slow rate. Um, yeah. If you're wanting to grow at a fast rate, how do you raise your expectations for how a joke should be doing, and how do you grow your comedy brain to know th- why a joke didn't work and what it needs to fix it? Well, the growth happened. It is a lot. I mean, people always say get on stage a bunch. That is a part of it, though. It's it like, is, yeah. But there's something you need to be looking for when you get on stage. yeah. What, is there a way to articulate that? Like it, what it is? It's just what feels the most correct way for you to do your jokes. Mm-hmm. And that's just something. It takes a lot of hours on stage to be like, you got to do it when you don't want to do it. I would say that helped me a lot. Is mm-hmm. he like, well, for when starting out, there's times now where I'm like, I know I need a week off. Uh, to like be at home or something like I just took a week. I well, I even I snuck in three sets while I was home, but still, <laughs> you need time apart from it to really grow your shit and be like, mm. I've been doing this too much. I'm starting to dislike these jokes. Mm. Need to take a step back, look at what I really want to say on stage, and then say that on stage. Ah, but you can do that while you're still going up, and then you just sneak it in to like do open mics a bunch. Do those open mics, bomb at open mics. That's the most mm-hmm. fun I've had in my life is bombing at open mics. Cause Why do you high. say that? I mean, you need you need to bomb in order to to know what doesn't work. And then when you bomb enough, you're like, I know exactly what doesn't work about my voice. And then it's harder to bomb now. So like it's mm-hmm. now it's like even a bomb is and I'm only ten years in. There's I mean, there's like a Hannibal Burris, Chris Rock version of a of a bad set is like a great set for really anyone. great right that's like <laughs> and they will say chris rock has said you'll never get away from bombing but it is true like it gets easier to bomb uh yeah. to, to get through that bomb yeah yeah you're it's not even a bomb at a certain right. point in your career. you're, so you're is it, good so what you're saying there's this quote of uh, uh stephen colbert's that circulates around about learn to love the bomb it's something he learned at second yeah. city and it's yeah. like learning that like getting through that failure on stage and actually enjoying those moments. So is that kind of what you're talking about of like, it's the most fun to bomb? It's not fun. I'm okay. I'm going to do this again tomorrow. (laughs) What can I do tomorrow to make sure it doesn't go this way? And then Mm -hmm. enough, you just know, 
like yeah like you you know what's not gonna bomb so you know no matter what you've got this part of your voice that's gonna at least get some laughs from the crowd so it's never i'm never gonna it's gonna be very hard for me to have a bomb anymore mm-hmm. like at this point i know when i've pissed the crowd off with something that not and it's hard for me to, i don't even say anything provocative like that but it's like i'm not gonna <laughs> i know when it's not fun to hear my voice on stage and i know, <laughs> I know how to get out of that now okay <laughs> and so it's not it's not going to be the same bomb as it was even two years ago like right where it's, yeah definitely not 10 years ago but it's going to be a different bomb now where it's not even going to feel like a bomb to them i'm going to know it's a bomb right they might be like yeah he just had an okay set I'm right like, right full-on bomb but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there, yeah. There's that element of you went on stage and other people are telling you you did great, and you're like, ah, I didn't quite do what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yep. Which isn't necessarily a bomb, but you had something in mind. Like I went out here with these expectations, mm-hmm. and I have these results, so right. it's a bomb. Yeah. Speaking on expectations, in particular, when it comes to doing an open mic, I've done a, a few of those up here, and I feel like my mindset was on doing well not necessarily learning uh anything i mean I, I i did think about it so i could learn but my it seemed like my primary objective was i, I want to do well i, I don't, I don't want to bomb in front of these people because they're all new and i, I want to do well in front of them but should my concern really be more how to break the joke or how to find my voice on stage and just get better Absolutely. at being on stage there's a uh... There's no point in killing at an open mic. Right. There's like there's people who play for the room and I'm like, but these people are all degenerates. <laughs> They're all <laughs> comics. We're all degenerates. Yeah. It's like we're not good a good gauge of what a crowd is gonna be like. We're all right. assholes. So it's like <laughs> you don't wanna kill for the room right. of comics. They're all looking at their sets. Yeah. They're yeah. barely paying well, attention. Yeah, exactly. So if somebody <laughs> grabs them and is making them like die laughing put that person on a real stage and then see how they do it might you might get different results true like so the mics don't necessarily kill on stage yeah i'm wanting artistry i'm wanting to approach it as like uh, this is me honing my skill and pushing myself as an artist so uh i want to do that and the open mic is the place to do that yeah Um, yeah what sort of uh, preparation do I need? To, is, should I always be putting a new material in that set? Uh, what should my mindset be? What do you think? I mean, it's hard to say in New York. Because the open mics I was doing in Chicago had a good mix of real people. So that's just how they are out there. <laughs> but here I noticed they're all comics. And you can do seven sets a night. If five of them are open mics, the five those five sets might have the same people, so it's hard to grow a joke. But mm-hmm. that's why it's a it's good to get a mix of shows in plus open mics in a night, I think. But it's yeah, it's uh, I think you got to look for the parts of the joke that got a chuckle and be like, how do I expand on that chuckle mm-hmm. to that to a full on laugh by the end of the night, by the whatever the third thing I go to tonight. I want that chuckle from the first one to be a laugh. And then I want the silences that led up to that chuckle to be also more chuckles. And then I want those chuckles to be laughs. And then it's just constantly getting all those little 
little laughs to get to big laughs, mm-hmm. and that's that's the process of the whole joke. It might take like a week of open mics, twenty sets, something like that. But that's that's how it gets done. Kind that's of. the nature of it. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we've reached the end of the ep- of this episode. There are a hundred million more things I think we could talk about, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially in your career. So I'll probably have to have have you on again. But um, let's uh, put something together here. If uh, somebody is wanting to learn how to, as they are writing jokes, uh, or what they want to figure out how to develop before they get on stage, let's uh, think of a process that we could go through. Um, I don't know what your process is like. I know Jerry Seinfeld had a thing of like, write a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have anything specific like that? Uh, yeah, sometimes I get high. <laughs> I like well, I like to do a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. at least twice a week, where I just sit in front of the Google Drive and write uh, anything on my mind, okay. and then analyze that Google Drive stream of consciousness and see what's interesting out of that, and then see if that interesting thing is something I can make funny. Okay, and then if I can make that funny, take it out for a night. Uh, tape it go back listen to it listen to what was the reason it wasn't funny mm-hmm. <laughs> why why didn't this do well even though it looked good mm-hmm. and go out the next night and add the jokes that i think would work to that and then listen to that <coughs> and then repeat process over and over again okay and then maybe another thing i wrote in stream of consciousness relates to the thing i the first part of the joke i had then I try to combine it. A lot of my jokes are combining thoughts I had separately, and then that's being what like, I've found for myself too. Yeah, yeah, that it's it's become that for me, and and I've been I've been in South Carolina doing comedy, so the pace is totally different. Uh, yeah, I've been doing comedy for in Ju- into July. It'll be eight years. Nice. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been great, and it's been a great experience. I'm definitely not fronting on. South Carolina, <laughs> and yeah. the, the Greenville comedy scene is great, and the the Charleston scene is great. Said yeah. it a bunch of times. Yeah. yeah, a lot of great people have come out of there and moved elsewhere. Right. Um, uh, but um, I'm I'm wanting to get in that grind here, wanting to uh, 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 grow that way. And uh, back home, uh, it's hard. You know, you get a couple shows a week. You know, like you, you don't have this too many options where you can go up multiple times a night. Um, and uh, maybe I could have used my daytime a little better. And that's uh, my next question as far as as far as this process. Uh, how much time would you suggest somebody spend each day before they even go on stage just trying to, like, develop that material? Like you're when you're processing your stream of consciousness writing, um, how much time are you devoting to that? I mean, kind of all day because uh, every train ride is an opportunity to think about something funny, mm-hmm. or notice right. something, and every every walk walking around the city helps a lot. Yeah, you're you might have an epiphany randomly on Sixty Third Street and be like, "Oh shit!" If I said this here, that's funny. All right, uh-huh. I'm gonna put that on the next ride before I gotta go to this because I always I've always had a job I didn't like, <laughs> and so that helped. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, until writing. But yeah, before that, it was always I got a job teaching. I was teaching. I didn't like teaching. Mm-hmm. Kids, kids are great, and I like the kids, and I'll have, I have long-lasting relationships with parents, and 
some of the kids, I'm like, I check in on their college growth and all this stuff and how they're doing in, in life. But I didn't like the job. <laughs> right, so, yeah. The system you know, is what a lot of teachers hate. Yeah, oh, it sucks. And so I knew I didn't like the job, and I did it in Chicago, and I did it in New York. And I hated every second of it pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So going to that job, you're thinking about that's that's what gets you by is being like, I know I'm doing this job now, but this joke is funny. <laughs> or this thing that I'm working toward is worth it worth having this job I don't like because I'm going to reach this point where I don't do this job anymore. And you did. Yeah. A year and a half now. No job. Uh, yeah. Well, well, well no, like, none of those like, jobs. Yeah, right. Yeah. No teaching. All right. Writing. <laughs> writing and acting and then stand up. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It's been fun. And I did. And plus the stress of uh, going back to that job makes me work harder when I don't have that job too. Because now the idea of going back makes me like have mm-hmm. a pain in my stomach and want to jump out of the window. So <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm never going to that. So I know that <laughs> what's the thing I can work the hardest on right now. So I never, even if it's like, I got to do associate producer shit on somebody's set, like yeah, on a local film shoot, if I got to do gaffer work, not that I can do gaffer work, they, they <laughs> that, but <laughs> whatever it is, like production assistant, anything like that, mm-hmm. anything do, to not go back to teaching, I'll do pretty much. Even if it's working, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that I have that in mind. And then I'm always like, but then I have to, if I have to do that for two weeks, what do I have to do now? What's my next job going to be where I, I have to be in this commercial? Maybe I got to be extra a couple times. I don't know. If I have to, fuck it. I got $300 for those two days. I have to do it. Stuff like that. Awesome. Well, there it is, man. Great. Great talk. Thanks for being here. Great talk. Thank you for having me. This is fun. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. Most importantly, I hope you learned something from it. And if you want to check out more stuff about Will, you can go to willmilescomedy.com. And why don't you just go ahead and you're on your phone. Just click on the Twitter app and look up at Mr. Will Miles and go to Facebook and look up Will Miles Comedy and follow him there. Also, he's got a podcast. It's Hopefully we don't break up. He does it with fellow comedian and his girlfriend, and uh, Julia Rossi. And it's called Hopefully We Don't Break Up. It's a very interesting podcast. They talk to other couples in the comedy world. And also, if you're ever in Brooklyn or New York, why don't you go to a show he co-hosts, a very popular show called Comedy at the Knitting Factory. It's every Sunday night. Next week's episode is our one-year anniversary. And no, I can't believe it either. This has been an amazing ride. Until next time, folks, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.